Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crimecast, a briefing featuring news, analysis, and guidance from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Spodekindle, and on this episode, we're exploring the leap from never digital to digital first. That's, of course, the leap that occurred in the financial services world, where the slow pace of tech adoption was dramatically sped up by the pandemic. Many institutions have now made a pretty successful digital evolution, but is that at the cost of higher fraud and financial crime risk? And is this trend here to stay? To get answers, I'm talking with Brian Farrow, the director of AML with FeedsEye and an expert in digital onboarding in the financial crime context. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being here on the Financial Crimecast. Uh, always a pleasure to speak with a fellow Brian. And uh, you even you even spell your name correctly, so that's even better. Uh, <laughs> this has been a topic of uh, conversation at pretty much every financial institution that that I know of. Um, the shift to digital first financial services uh, brought on by the pandemic has been both a huge challenge and, in many ways, I think a big success story at a lot of institutions. Um, but still, still a lot to talk about here. So, so let's get into it. Um, if you don't mind just kicking it off with a little bit about you and, and your background in this space um, and your role at FeedsEye, that would be much appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you, Brian. Um, my name's Brian Farrow. Uh, I'm the director of our AML solutions here at FeedsEye. Um, prior to joining FeedsEye, I spent about eight years at two different vendors um, in a very similar role where I was the product manager over the AML solutions at those vendors as well. Um, and then before switching over to the vendor side of the house, spent 15 years at one of the big four banks within the U.S., uh, got really started by doing uh, fraud investigations and then moved over into uh, looking at AML investigations. And then uh, before I left the bank, was really working within the special investigation unit for anything involving high profile cases or cases that would have involved uh, law enforcement. So made the change to the vendor side back in 2013 and trying to take some of that insight into how we develop and solve problems for our customers. Excellent. Thank you for that. And uh, Feeds has been doing some really innovative work um, particularly in, this, in the space that we're talking about. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a perfect fit to get into to digital onboarding and uh, how to deliver that while still maintaining compliance and a high level of uh, customer service. So uh, first off, you know, I think this term's been thrown around a lot, you know, digital onboarding, the shift to, to being a digital first institution, that these types of things, people have heard that quite a bit, but, you know, we haven't always necessarily defined it. Um, and what it means. So, so let's start there. What does digital onboarding mean to banks, uh, and particularly to their customers? Since that's that's where one of the areas that we're really going to focus on. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So, I think this is a term that has been around for a little while, but certainly with the pandemic and everything that took place with the restrictions and trying to keep people safe, absolutely was magnified. And what digital onboarding really means is instead of going into a branch and having that face-to-face -face interaction with the teller or relationship manager, what you're doing is going through the process of opening up your profile, opening up your accounts with the bank through either online banking or mobile banking. Um, I think what we've seen, especially in the last 
definitely within the last five years or so is how everybody's starting to utilize their mobile phones or cell phones for more and more of their daily activity. And banking is no different than that. So by going in and being able to use digital onboarding, banks are providing opportunities for customers to open up accounts with them and really starting to expand um, their relationships and penetrate different markets as well. Yeah, that kind of answers to some degree my next question. But, you know, I'm wondering uh, why that this approach beyond the obvious one of, you know, hey, there was a pandemic, so it was risky to go into the institution and talk face to face. Why does a financial institution want to go down this this path? Um, and why would customers want to go down this path? And then, you know, I guess my follow up question would be, what is what are some of the strengths and weaknesses of of a kind of all or nothing approach versus like a blended approach. And, uh, you know, we've seen some institutions say, you know, hey, we're, we're moving, we're, you know, we, we only exist on an app. Um, and then we've seen some institutions that, you know, were very much face-to-face kind of just take tentative steps in this direction. So so what are, what are the advantages of embracing it and shifting either all the way or part of the way or retaining some kind of blend? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, and you touched on this in kind of as you asked the question there, um, I think from the challenger bank's perspective, there is absolutely the push to not have any physical locations and do everything digitally. So they're very much embracing um, technology and being able to onboard and go through the verification process of bringing customers on through, through, through digital channels, which could be the, the online banking, the mobile banking, it could be uh, through verification that way, answering questionnaires. And, and initially, the more traditional banks that had a network of hundreds of branches were a little reticent to do so because they weren't sure that this is something that was sustainable and probably something that was um, going to be adopted by our, by the, the wider customer base. But what you've seen is with everybody's hectic schedules, um, people being busy and the traditional bank hours really being a nine to five Monday through Friday type thing. And you may have some that have Saturday hours or open a little bit later, but if you've got a full-time job, you've got kids getting to a bank to open up an account became really a challenge. You had to cut time out of your busy day, maybe even take time off of work to try to get down to the bank and do something that most people thought was a pretty simple task. So, I think from a bank's perspective of why they would want to do this is you're now expanding your banking hours to be 24-7. You don't have to have people manning a branch and waiting for folks to come in and out. So you really are opening up the opportunity for people to come in and, and open accounts with you. And by doing so, too, you don't have to have branches in specific regions. So if I'm a branch that's located in the southeast, and I've got somebody who maybe have moved from Georgia to, I don't know, Oregon, but they want to maintain their account with their hometown. Maybe it's something that they go in and they can open up an account through the mobile app in order to keep that money locally or utilize that money in, in the hopes of going back. Um, and then from a customer standpoint, I think it really provides a lot of flexibility and a lot of the 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 way that people can open up these accounts now is much more streamlined. So there's efficiencies there that I don't have to bring in 
all my information from home, find all that information. Um, some of it may be already on my phone, or at least I feel comfortable in the fact that the information that I have to provide won't leave my home. So I don't have to worry about dropping anything or losing anything or handing anything over to somebody who's in the branch themselves that, you know, I don't necessarily know from a, a trust perspective. So I think from both sides, there's definitely advantages to doing so. Um, they're doing the, the digital onboarding. From a bank's perspective, you now have broadened your customer's base. And from a customer's perspective, you've got a lot more flexibility and opportunity to do the things at your schedule versus somebody else's schedule. That said, you know, it's not all it's not all wine and roses. Is that the is that a phrase? Is that a, something you can say? Um, I'm going to go with it uh, when it comes to <laughs> we're going with it when it comes to digital banking. Uh, there are absolutely are challenges, right? And one of the you know main ones that I've experienced, and I wonder if this fits with you, um, is when it does come time. You know, when something goes wrong and it comes time to talk to a human, it can be difficult, right? You're stuck engaging with a chat. Um, and that type of thing. And particularly on the financial crime side, if there is, you know, suspected fraud or an account frozen due to suspect activity, those types of things um, can be particularly, you know, particularly galling for customers trying to trying to uh, obtain services, either obtain services or, or access their, their, their uh, existing services. So, so let's talk about that. What are some of the challenges that you have seen, um, institutions face when, you know, particularly during onboarding, but then even going forward and maintaining the relationship. Yep. Yeah. So I think with every good thing, there's also some, usually some backlash or some not so great things. Um, certainly one of the big challenges is going to be adoption. Um, I think prior to COVID and prior to, you know, everybody being stuck at home, part of the the onboarding process, the digitalization, digital onboarding process that may have been holding it back some was people's reluctance to do so. And you, you kind of hit a nerve there a second ago. I'm, I'm not a spring chicken myself, but there are things that people were forced to do uh, during COVID. And for, for people like my parents' generation, especially doing some magic over their phone as far as banking is concerned was not something that even crossed their mind. They didn't want to do that. Um, they felt very uneasy to do so. So they were forced into adopting more of this digital digitalization and onboarding was definitely part of that process. And once they embraced it, or once they got to be comfortable with it, they truly embraced it. And then they started to utilize this much more. So. I feel like um, adoption was going to be a challenge for the banks. But then in turn, um, the other aspect of it was really around making sure that the customer experience was a pleasant one. So you, you mentioned if I get stuck getting into a chat with somebody and then having to work through the process of why I'm stuck and why I can't progress, which is good because you're, you're giving that person, that applicant, the ability to communicate and figure out what's going on. Um, there's a stat that was out there I read, and I for, forgive or I forget, and please forgive me for whoever had the stat, but um, I think it was something around 60% of the potential customers will stop in the middle of the onboarding process if they feel frustrated with the process itself. So, in other words, if you don't provide a good customer experience, 
you're really losing the opportunity to bring new customers in. And that's, that's a very critical aspect to this. So it's all about reducing the customer friction as you go through and you start looking at the different ways to collect their information, to get to know them, to validate that information as they go through this process. And conversely with that, and I know we live in the day day and age of stolen identification and you know all of, all of our information being out there via credit card breaches and whatnot. But when does the bank start to look at creating customer friction? So if I'm going through and not everything is necessarily adding up, do we have the process in place to start to put in more significant questions or asking for more levels of data on that person just to make sure that we know that Brian is who Brian says he is versus Brian pretending to be Josh or somebody else, right? So it's all about making sure that one, you've got people that are readily adopting this process. And then two, ensuring that you've got a pleasant customer experience going through this versus creating friction for those people that may not be who they say they are. Um, and then on top of it too, it's the speed. So ultimately when you're going through this, I don't want to be waiting hours or days for an account to open, but really want to be able to provide um, almost immediate review of what my accounts will look like and where I need to be uh, guiding my services and where I want to deposit my money into my accounts. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the speed aspect is extremely important. I think everyone's gotten used to doing things quickly, right? Uh, they want, uh, and that goes to, to transactions. So, you know, we're 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 approaching, or in some cases, at essentially real time payments, um, uh, and uh, we expect, you know, I think even account onboarding, account opening to be done very quickly, or you know, obtaining new services to be done very quickly. But with speed generally comes the opportunity for fraud right um and i think that's that's been one of the perceptions of of digital onboarding is that there is an opening a a greater opening for for fraud um maybe that's already been sort of tempered by uh, the pandemic but maybe not maybe some institutions have seen kind of spikes in fraud related to uh uh pandemic shutdowns and uh maybe tied to some of the waves of fraud targeting government programs in the pandemic. So have you seen uh, greater fraud risks when you do move to digital? So th the answer is actually not um, not intuitive. People would expect that the move from face-to-face -face account opening would, uh, to, I'm sorry, moving from face-to-face -face account opening to moving to a digital, quite impersonal account opening process would be fraught with fraud. Right. Like the increase would be exponential because you're now going from somebody who's not having to go into a branch, not being caught on surveillance and moving into something that's providing a lot of an anonymity. Um, but actually, the risk of digital onboarding is actually less from a fraud perspective because of the number of checks and verifications that you have to go through in that process. So while somebody may be able to go into a branch with a stolen driver's license or a fake identification, typically those branch setups aren't in position to go through and validate that driver's license. They're not able to go in and have an immediate uh, verification of an address. They're not able to 
cross-reference with credit bureaus or what have you versus the digital online onboarding channel because they're so connected with outside resources that the bank has done had partnerships with. So the bank providing those partnerships are really around being able to identify this driver's license belongs to so-and-so. They can take a look at that driver's license and take a picture through their phone and see if there's similarities there and enough similarities to validate who that person is, who they say they are. And there's companies out there that collate a lot of that information to validate those images are all consistent across their media footprint, for example, their social media footprint, and then being able to take a look at certain biometrics as well. So you may be able to utilize these biometrics as far as Brian lives in a specific state, but the biometrics are showing that he's not actually in that state or what is his uh, online pattern of activity and can we trace that and ensure that that is consistent with how we would expect him to act as well. So there's a lot of updates that are being done from a technology standpoint that help stop perpetrators from getting access to the institution. And ironically enough, it's all these different data points within the digital onboarding channel that can be compiled to help create these risk scores to stop people from actually conducting fraudulent activity versus having somebody at a branch or maybe face-to-face that isn't trained to look for these key indicators, being able to be duped by somebody who maybe is quite charming and getting their way in to open up an account and coming up with excuses as to why things may not look exactly the way one would expect them to. So um, there's definitely a opportunity to help reduce fraud, believe it or not, through the digital onboarding channel versus the traditional face-to-face. Kind of flies yeah. in the face of what people would expect, I know, but that's yeah. the reality. No, it's true. And I mean, well, I, when you hear that explanation, it makes more sense. And it's, you know, important to also remember that there wasn't, there was, it's not as if there was no fraud in face-to-face interactions. There was fraud all the time. There were fraudulent account openings and, exactly. uh, I, and identity theft and uh, accounts open for mewling purposes, you know. So, so it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily working going gangbusters uh, to do it face-to-face. And, you know, a lot of that was focused on the human-to-human interaction, the kind of social engineering, and the fact that you know the teller or the whatever the branch, the branch individual would probably take things at face value to some degree in that interaction. But then, when you move to the digital side and you do have this kind of universe of of data to access, um, that element of it is kind of removed or at least downplayed. So, um, you know, it is interesting to kind of think of the opportunity to harness a lot of data about individuals, because we obviously leave such massive digital footprints these days, everything from our device data to our our browser uh, history in some cases is, is accessible or partially accessible, social media profiles, um, all of that, you know, can potentially be pulled into some investigations or onboarding. The challenge I hear a lot of institutions is they may have access to that at some level at some part of the institution they may not or different elements of the institution have different levels of access so is there still that fragmentation of data access that you would need to you know make some of these decisions in a way that would capture this fraudulent activity 
So I think from the aspect of the banks collecting the data, um, they can definitely build out profiles for what would be the uh, expected behavior, expected activity for that customer. Um, but I think during the onboarding process, what you're really trying to ascertain is what types of data am I getting from this person? So you're really starting to just dive into collecting the data for this individual and then determining what those data points are in order to start building out that profile. So there are going to be areas within the bank that probably already have information for somebody. So you may end up seeing where somebody had a loan or information on a loan, um, which is different from having a, a simple checking account, right? So I think one of the things to keep in mind here is even though the bank may have that data on the lending side of it, the, the data that they would need for opening up an account may be different or they may be looking for more updated information. And a lot of times banks do have data, but that data could be stale. So when they're going through this, this digital onboarding, it's not to say that they don't have some record of the individual in existence, but they may need to have that information updated. And there are some regulations out there that do periodic review of what your customer's expected activity would be. And I think we can all relate to getting the questionnaires once in a while about, you know, what is your occupation? What's your household income? And just updating some of the information that banks would need to help with keeping them compliant with the regulations. But also from a product offering perspective, you've got the ability to really help with giving guidance to better products that may serve you better from a customer standpoint. Yep. So let's look at let, let's 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 cap it off. I got to look ahead um, and thinking about kind of you know what comes next. Um, we're reopening. Um, we're moving back to you know some of us are going back to the office. A lot of us are already there. So uh, should we expect that this type of you know, digital first onboarding and financial services will continue, will accelerate. Is everybody going to move to, you know, providing all of your banking on an app? Um, is there still a place for, you know, the branch office? I know a lot of branches have clo- closed during the pandemic. Some may never reopen. Um, where are we going? Is you know, what, what are your thoughts? So I, I, I firmly believe that this is one of those trends that while it had started, few years ago, definitely picked up speed during the pandemic, and it's going to have long-lasting implications. Um, There was a trend for banks, the traditional banks, to start to close their branches. They probably had too many of them to begin with, and that was somewhat due to operational cost and being able to reduce the cost, but also they weren't getting the same amount of foot traffic. What we've seen a lot and being from the vendor space particularly, is we've seen a lot of challenger banks come up through the last couple of years, probably more so in the last two years than the previous 25 years. And a lot of these challenger banks are very specific to being able to cater to people in digital platforms. So these these new challenger banks, and some of them are subsidiaries of, of larger institutions. And you can think of the global top 10 they're opening subsidiary challenger banks to test these markets. So if you've got your more traditional uh, superpowers of the banking world, if you will, 
starting to dip their toe into these areas where they haven't traditionally played, I think it's safe to assume that if they're investing, they know that there's a market and where there's a market, there's an opportunity to make some money. So with that, I think we're going to see the digitalization and these digital channels be used more and more. Um, I think what we're going to see is an evolution of technology. Um, we're going to see more biometrics being used so that you are being not only seen from a facial recognition standpoint, but if there's products or services that come up, you'll probably be notified more frequently of those. And then also I see where there's going to be more competition for people to, for institutions to get people's business. And ironically, where I think some of this is going to end up playing with as well is in, in this may be a, a, tab, a taboo subject for some, but where is blockchain technology going to sit within all of this? So we know that there are distributed ledgers that hold very secure information. This is now being applied to people's identification so that it can't be tampered with. And if I bring my digital ledger to whichever bank, they can take a look at all the information that's there with my key code, understand that all of it has been verified, all of it is it's encrypted, so it can't be um, it can't be morphed. It can't be tampered with. And therefore, if I'm bringing my identification via distributed ledger, that means that they can onboard me much sooner. I can have accounts much sooner, and we can have much more secure interaction between the customer and the institution that they decide to bank with. So, it's going to be interesting to see how all of that starts to play out in the future, and you know where where these institutions start to adopt that type of technology and applying that technology as well. But I definitely think the days of people stopping by the bank on Friday afternoons to cast their check are, uh, are a thing of the past for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say so. Uh, and I'm, you know, as mentioned before, I'm old enough to remember doing that at uh, my, my first couple <laughs> Same. of jobs. Same. So, yeah. So, uh, uh, and I, you know, I, I definitely don't miss it either. So, you know, not necessarily the good old days of, of financial services, but, but yeah, fascinating, fascinating future to come. I think the idea that you broached about, you know, digital identities kind of held on a blockchain and ownership of those identities for individuals um, is really fascinating and definitely a solution to a lot of the challenges we see now around you know, data theft and identity theft and lack of uh, data privacy, you know, that it has to be balanced with uh, uh, this really, this need for ser digital services like digital banking. So um, a lot more to come there. We could probably talk about that for another another half hour or to an hour in and of itself. <laughs> but unfortunately, we are out of time on this on this episode of the Crimecast. So we'll have to have you back, Brian, for uh, for another look ahead to the future sometime. But thank you so that. much for yeah. being here. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy happy to participate and happy to uh, share what I know about this process.
Yep, and uh, and uh, thanks to everybody out there. And um, think of, think of us next time you uh, cash a check using your remote deposit capture. Or, so again, I've been speaking with uh, Brian Farrow. He's the director of AML at Feedzai, and it's been a pleasure having this conversation. Thank you, everybody out there, for listening and joining us on the Financial Crimecast. You can find us on podcast, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, and many of your other favorite podcasting platforms. So join us again for the next episode. Have a great day, everyone. Bye for now.